this episode of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Larry Ostola, and today I have the pleasure to speak to Gary Smith about the 1972 summit series between Canada and the Soviet Union and its legacy. Gary Smith is a graduate of York University and served as a fellow at the Center for International Affairs at Harvard University. A retired career diplomat and ambassador, Over the course of his career, he was posted to a variety of countries, including the Soviet Union, Israel, Germany, and Indonesia, during what were some very tumultuous times. He has contributed to a variety of publications related to international security and written ambassadorial essays in two books entitled Declassified and Not Mentioned in Dispatches. His new book, Ice War Diplomat, Hockey Meets Cold War Politics at the 1972 Summit Series, was published by Douglas and McIntyre in 2022. Gary, many thanks for joining me today. Very happy to be with you, Larry, and thanks for that kind introduction. So Gary, you're our witness to yesterday, and in this case, in fact, you're an eyewitness. Tell our listeners about the goal on September 28, 1972, and what it was like to be on the spot. Well, Larry, I was in Moscow at the time. It was in the evening, as you said, Thursday, September the 28th, 1972. And I was very fortunate to have been a participant uh, or a witness at each and every one of the eight games in Canada and in the Soviet Union. I had two tickets for every game, plus I had a pass that let me go wherever I wanted to go, along the rinkside, behind the benches, and into the dressing rooms. And on September 28th, 1972, it was a very tumultuous uh, day. The series was tied at three games each with one tied. This was the deciding match. And I had spent most of the previous evening in the morning arguing about who was going to referee the final game. And it took a lot of energy. Uh, We went on for hours and hours. Alan Eagleson and Harry Sinden threatened to call off the series, uh, to pack it up and just go home, take the players with them. And from a diplomatic point of view, I argued and our ambassador argued that that wasn't possible. So we came to a compromise that there'd be one referee uh, from each side. We chose the Swede. Uh, In our arguments with the Soviet side, they said, well, that's fine, but the, uh, the Swede is sick. And our response was, well, how could he be sick? We just saw him at breakfast that morning. He looked fine. And the Soviet uh, KGB official said, well, he's not fine anymore. He's sick. We knew it was a political illness. So we ended up with a West German referee who uh, we didn't like and one from uh, Czechoslovakia. So at within three minutes of the, uh, the game eight, the West German in question had called three penalties on Team Canada. And he called one on J.P. Parise, and he was uh, given a game misconduct for threatening the referee. 
and Harry Sinden, the coach, had thrown out a, a chair and towels and a bench onto the ice. So there was a lot of tumult, and the 2,700 Canadian fans that were there started chanting, let's go home, let's go home. So it sounded like the whole series was going to collapse. But we finally got to the uh, the third period. Uh, we were down 5-3. to three. Bill Esposito scores a goal, it's 5-4. Yvonne Cornway scores a goal, it's 5-5. But the light doesn't go on. And Alan Eagleson uh, was quite upset. He uh, pole vaulted over a number of fans, uh, ended up being uh, detained by the Soviet militia, and uh, was being escorted out of the rink when Canadian players intervened and our protocol people intervened. And uh, Alan ended up being escorted across the ice to the Canadian bench. So that was the scene. And it was 5-5, and we were down to the last minute. Now, I was standing beside the boards between the benches and the dressing rooms, just in case there were going to be any more incidents and I could perhaps uh, come to some form of aid of uh, uh, to try and work it out with both sides. And I was up at the side of the rink uh, where... Ken Dryden was in net. So when Paul Henderson scored with 34 seconds left to go, uh, I was at the other end of the rink. I was very excited that we had finally gone ahead 6-5, but I had my eye on the clock that last 34 seconds because my job was to make sure that that series came to a conclusion because it was intended to improve relations between Canada and the Soviet Union. Well, and in fact, uh, Gary, you raise a really interesting point, because on the surface, I'm sure there are a lot of people who might think that, well, the, the Summit Series was simply about hockey, but you, you've made it clear that it was about a lot more than that. And so I, I'd like to set the stage with a little context. Um, so you were a diplomat at the Canadian Embassy in Moscow. What was your role there? Well, I was I joined External Affairs Department in 1968 and immediately was put on the uh, the Soviet desk uh, during the invasion of Czechoslovakia. And I guess I did a reasonable enough job. So they told me I was going to go to Moscow. Uh, and then they said, but before you go, you're going to have to learn Russian language. So they sent me uh, that was the plan for a full year of Russian. My wife insisted that she also have the Russian language training. So we did a full year, just the two of us in class. Your turn, your turn, your turn, 10 hours a day, every day, every week for the, the full year. So I was assigned to Moscow in February 1971 in charge of exchanges. So I was in charge of exchanges, including sports, spoke Russian, and I played hockey for the embassy team called the Moscow Maple Leafs. So that's why I was in Moscow, how I got to Moscow, and what I was doing in Moscow. Okay, and, and another bit of context I'd like to get at, uh, because some people may perhaps be, be too young to remember this, but I wonder if you could just briefly describe life in the Soviet Union at the time. We know the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, and the Soviet Union uh, dissolved a few years later. Um, 
But what was what was life in the Soviet Union like at that time? And what was the state of relations like with the West in the early 1970s when the series happened? Well, this was the uh, the height of the Cold War. Uh, we had had the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 that scared everybody. The Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia, as I mentioned, in 1968. And Canada had a number of uh, troops, uh, ground troops and air force, uh, along with other NATO nations facing off against uh, the Warsaw Pact. So there were well over a million soldiers on both sides of the uh, the Berlin Wall. Uh, it was a tense situation. And Pierre Trudeau uh, decided that he should be doing something about this. Uh, he wanted to bring China in from the cold. And he tried to go forward with uh, a way to ease tensions with the Soviet government. Well, and th this seems to have coincided with with a changing view of hockey and of sport within the government of Canada. Uh, you mentioned that it came to be regarded at that time as an important aspect of our national identity. And with that change came a greater push to open tournaments to all players, including professionals. Now, Canada had left international hockey until open and fair competition was permitted. And is it fair to say that this changed view of sports provided uh, an opening to lay the groundwork for the series? Hockey is in Canada's DNA and in the DNA of Canadians. And we hold it very dear. It's uh, one of the few things that uh, we're really good at. And indeed, we thought we were the greatest at. Uh, and our last World Olympics, so that we won, was 1952, the Edmonton Mercuries. And the last World Championships uh, that we won, the Trail Smoke Eaters, in 1961. And we started to lose and lose and lose to the Soviet Union. And the, the Olympics also, we, uh, the number of medals we got in 1960, 64, 68, all were going downwards. And Pierre Trudeau in 1968, in the election of June that year, uh, he got onto the idea that sports is part of culture, culture is part of national identity, and national identity is part of uh, national unity. And you may recall, Larry, that in that period of time, national unity was very, very important with the uh, the uh, quiet revolution underway in Quebec. So. He saw sports as playing a big role. He uh, tried to get Vancouver into the NHL, and he set up uh, Hockey Canada uh, that was to look into the ways we could regain our superiority and supremacy in hockey. So that's how politics uh, got linked into uh, hockey in 1968. And so... There were also, uh, uh, in reading the book, I, I understood that there were geopolit geopolitical considerations that came into play. So the USSR, uh, the Soviet Union, was concerned by a growing rapprochement between the United States and China. And from their side, they seem to have seen hockey as one means through which relations uh, with Canada could be improved proved particularly in light of their crushing of the Prague Spring uh, in 1968. And as you just pointed out, Canada, by the same token, uh, was also uh, seeking to use sport as a bit of a diplomatic tool and to diversify its channels of international communication to counter the preponderance of the United States. How, how important do you think these geopolitical considerations were? 
Well, very important. And uh, I happened to be in Moscow uh, after I got there in February 71. Uh, Pierre Trudeau became the first Canadian prime minister to pay a visit to the Soviet Union. And it was uh, he had just been married to Margaret uh, two months earlier in March of 71. And they came for a 12-day visit. And just to set the context, there was something called ping-pong diplomacy going on between uh, the United States and China. And there were secret visits by Henry Kissinger and then uh, Richard Nixon to China. And the Soviets were very concerned about this because they didn't want China and the United States ganging up on them. You may recall that there was an actual war underway between uh, China and the Soviet Union on the Ussuri River and a number of respective troops were being killed. So as a counter to what Nixon was doing with China, the Soviets uh, thought, well, here's Canada. It's a member of NATO. It's a neighbor to the United States. Pierre Trudeau seems friendly enough toward us. And moreover, uh, Canada had all sorts of uh, high tech that uh, you know originally came out of the United States. So the Soviets said, Perhaps if they deal with Canada, uh, they'd be able to acquire some of that technology and, you know, hydro generation, pulp and paper, uh, automotive sector. So what happened was after Pierre Trudeau's visit in uh, May of 71, the Soviet premier came to Canada in October of 71, very closely thereafter. And he was greeted with protests across Canada wherever he went. In Ottawa, somebody jumped on his back, a Hungarian-Canadian, and rode him like a horse. There were protests in Toronto, Montreal, Edmonton. And it was only when he got to Vancouver, he said, I don't uh, want to have any more protests and demonstrations. And uh, Paul Martin Sr. said, well, there's a hockey game on. 15,000 people are going to be there. He didn't want to go initially, but he went. He was greeted at center ice by the Montreal Canadian captain Henri Richard, Vancouver Canuck captain Orlan Kurtenbach, and the crowd gave him a very warm reception. And the Soviet flag flew for the very first time in an NHL arena. And in my view, uh, a light went on for Kosygin then that the way to improve relations with Canada and Canadians was through hockey. And I think that a... Uh, a uh, directive went down from the top in the Soviet Union, which uh, that's how they conducted their business, was uh, top down. And uh, that gave us an opening to pursue the idea that perhaps hockey would be a, a way to find some common ground between the two countries. Is is it fair to say then that that event, that the reception that Kosygin got in Vancouver uh, was something of a key breakthrough that led to the series taking place? Or were there other factors that you think maybe outweighed that? Well, that was an important factor. Uh, Also, that Pierre Trudeau wanted to establish a general exchanges agreement with the Soviets. The Soviets are all interested in technology and industry, but Pierre Trudeau said that it's through uh, contacts, person-to-person contacts, that you help change a society. So when Kosygin was in Canada, he signed this general exchanges agreement, and it wasn't just for scientists and educators and musicians and so on. There was a a clause in there about sportsmen. And I think that was a very, very important thing. 
um, because one of our goals was to try and put a human face on communism uh, and common ground between Canada and the Soviet Union, the broadest and deepest common ground that impacted intellectuals as well as the common man was ice hockey. Uh, so that, I think all those things came together to make it a political imperative to have this series go forward. And at the same time, we were very, very keen on the hockey uh, front to show that uh, we indeed were better than the so-called Soviet amateurs. Okay, so one one of the we, we've set a bit of context in terms of uh, how the series came to be, and so here we are on the eve of the series beginning uh, in Montreal in 1972. And one of the great stories in your book is that of a Canadian who filed a lawsuit just prior to the start of the series, uh, seeking compensation from the Soviets for a rental car that he had that had literally been crushed by Soviet tanks in Prague in 1968. I had never heard that story. What happened to this guy? Well, he was visiting uh, Prague at the time and uh, had rented a vehicle, and all of a sudden the Soviets invaded, and a tank ran over his vehicle. And he said, well, look, uh, <laughs> it's not my fault. And they said, well, you rented the car and it's destroyed. You owe us $1,500. And he tried to get compensation from uh, the Czech government and the Soviet government, and they said, nyet, nyet. So all of a sudden, he saw an opportunity. Here comes the Soviet team to Canada, and he got a, 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 a lower court judge in Quebec to put a lien on the Soviet equipment. That, <laughs> you know, they, uh, they were going to take the Soviet's equipment unless he got his $1,500. And the Soviet ambassador became enraged, and he said, well, if this goes forward, we're not going to play. We're going to go back uh, to the Soviet Union, and there'll be no series. Lawyers and external affairs eventually convinced the judicial authorities in Quebec that nobody could put a, a commercial uh, lien on, on a foreign government. So that's how that got underway. And the fellow that was filing the complaint agreed to hold off on it and uh, that we would, the Canadian government would see what it could do to deal with the both the Czechs and the Soviets to make sure he got his money. Oh, that's that's just a, a fascinating story. But uh, on a personal front, I mean, you had what what must have been an extraordinary opportunity of personally accompanying the Soviet team to Canada for the first four games of the series. And you mentioned, you know, uh, there were no family members accompanying the team because they're basically coming. Uh, from what I guess I can refer to as a surveillance state, and the KGB was keeping a close eye on the players. How did their visit to Canada go in the context of those first four games? Well, <laughs> there were 36 persons on that aircraft, uh, Aeroflot flight from Moscow to Montreal, and uh, I was the 36th and the only non-Soviet uh, person on that flight. And as you mentioned, they keep uh, close tabs on all their people that uh, travel abroad at the time. And they don't allow them to travel with girlfriends or mothers and fathers or fans or uh, brothers and sisters. So in a sense, there's a little bit of uh, hostage taking going on here that if you were to defect, then there would be severe repercussions for your family back in Moscow. Uh, so... In addition to having various minders on the team, and a number of the players were members of the, uh, the Soviet uh, Komsomol, the, uh, the Young Communist League, uh, 
So they're under uh, strong surveillance, but they're also given money incentives. So they they would be given hard currency to buy mute, you know, albums, uh, record albums, blue jeans, or high boots for their girlfriends. And when they were back in Moscow, the Soviet players or ballerinas and so on would have access to uh, special apartments. They'd get a car. Uh, there were special stores that had groceries and meat products that weren't available to the average Soviet citizen. So it was a combination of a stick and a, a carrot that that kept the Soviet athletes and performers in line when they they traveled abroad. But you know, when for me, when I was with them, uh, you could see their eyes open wide. Uh, we were staying at the Queen Elizabeth Hotel in Montreal. And when we had the breakfast, it was a breakfast buffet and, you know, the table was groaning with various things. But the big thing for them was to see fresh uh, fruit um, because fresh fruit in Moscow, extremely hard to find. You know, you couldn't find bananas and uh, strawberries and so on and so forth. So that was another uh, thing for them. And I would watch them eat a lot. Uh, they loved uh, drinking Coca-Cola, uh, which also wasn't available in the in the Soviet Union at the time. And they liked hot dogs. And watching television, they used to, uh, you know, most of them didn't speak any English or French. So uh, watching television, they'd either watch some of the Olympics that were coming from Munich at the time or or cartoons on television <laughs> because, you know, uh, Popeye and... Uh, Bugs Bunny and so on, because you could understand what that was all about without knowing the language. Well, uh, Coke and hot dogs sounds like a pretty high performance diet. I, uh, I don't know how they managed to play, but in any case, um, Phil Esposito is a player that you highlight. He was involved in two very memorable moments during the series. Uh, many will recall his televised rant with an interviewer after Team Canada lost in Vancouver after game four. And that rant really seemed to strike a chord nationally and the second moment or incident was his famous bow after falling to the ice in the first game in moscow now in the book you describe the second event as the most important diplomatic event of the series that was that's quite a statement why did you think it was so significant and how would you evaluate uh, phil esposito's impact on the series well he had an, an enormous impact uh, on the series he became the real leader that speech in uh, Vancouver after Team Canada lost and was booed off the ice, none of us uh, saw the speech. Uh, it was on CTV with Johnny Esau. Uh, none of the Canadian players nor the Soviet players saw it. I didn't see it uh, until after. But the Canadian public saw it. And it helped change the, uh, the feeling of support for Canada because we were supposed to have won this series handily. And Esposito's speech was sort of called the uh, Gettysburg uh, Address or the Churchill's Defiance speech, uh, uh, the, one of the greatest speeches in Canadian history. Um, but when we got to Moscow, um, before uh, Game 5, the team was introduced. They had had young skaters come out with carnations, which they gave to every one of the players. And then they started to call out the, the players by name. And Phil Esposito was number seven. So in Russian, when they called out Phil Esposito, numer 10, he skated forward, 
he stepped on one of those carnations and he went down on his backside. And rather than scamper back in embarrassment to the blue line, which a Soviet player would have done, worried about being sent off to Siberia, Phil really milked this opportunity and he bowed to the crowd, to the Soviet leadership in the Tribune, turned around and bowed to the other side. And everybody in the on the Soviet side laughed at it. Policemen laughed, leadership laughed. And the thing that is important here is, while we talk about a massive Canadian audience watching this uh, hockey series, we had estimated that 150 million Russians had seen it on television themselves. So they're seeing a man fall to the ice and laughing at it. And for them, that showed individualism as opposed to collectivism, someone who could make light of things. And then they saw a, a man who would be prepared to defy authority, sometimes defying referees, uh, putting up a choke sign. And he became extremely popular in the Soviet Union. And many, many years afterwards, Phil Esposito is a name that all kinds of people remember. Oh, well, that's that's amazing. And speaking of remembering, I'm giving something away here. But I remember both of those moments uh, clearly, uh, seeing uh, Phil Esposito on TV and then seeing the, the famous incident in Moscow. But so we've got, we've got Team Canada uh, in Moscow. What types of challenges did they face during the second half of the series uh, in Moscow? Well, when the Team Canada was formed up, there were 35 players, and Harry Sinden had promised each and every one of them that they would get to play a game and that their spouses or girlfriends would come to Moscow on holiday for, uh, for the two weeks. And as the series went along, when it was done in Canada, we were losing. Uh, we had won one game, tied one, but the Soviets had won two. So we were in a hole and not playing very well. As I mentioned, we had been booed off the, uh, the ice in, in Vancouver. And then there were two games in Sweden. And they turned into Donnie Brooks. And I think at that time, uh, Harry Sinden, the coach, realized we had too many players. And there was a mutiny underway. A number of the players who weren't playing said, well, look, we better go home. Uh, we should prepare for the coming NHL season. We're, we're not happy either riding the bench or not even being dressed for the game. So the first challenge that uh, Harry Sinden and, uh, and Alan Eagleson faced was this mutiny. And indeed, four of the players did quit the team and went back to Canada. And there had been suggestions that it might have been upwards of 10 players uh, when they first got talking about it. But the other players settled down, realized that if we were going to win this series, the best players had to be on the ice after each game. Then there were skirmishes about um, would we get ice time when uh, we had training. There were Soviet figure skaters on the ice. They had to be shooed away. Uh, there was controversy about uh, stakes that had been sent over and whether they had been stolen or cut in half. Uh, beer disappeared, uh, supposedly, although we had lots of beer at the embassy. And then there was um, concern about 
calls in the middle of the night, uh, people being followed, uh, general KGB uh, surveillance. So most of the Canadian players had never been outside of uh, North America. And this was a big, big challenge. But I think what made the difference uh, was that they did have loved ones with them. And the uh, the 2,700 Canadian fans that came over were huge supporters for them, together with thousands and thousands of telegrams and letters came, uh, coming in. So all of a sudden, there's this great love for Team Canada, great love for the players, which didn't exist uh, in Canada. Because when we lost that first game in Montreal, there was shock throughout Canada. You know, we lost seven to three. How could it happen? We were supposed to win eight games handily, and we didn't. So Team Canada realized it's going to have to uh, pull up its socks. Uh, we lost the first game. We'd been up 4-1. We lost at 5-4. So there are three remaining games, and we had to win each and every one of them. And we did by one goal in each game. And who scores the one goal in each game, game six, seven, and eight, this guy that was largely unknown when the series started, wearing number 19 on his back, Paul Henderson. So it's a Hollywood story. Uh, Goliath is humbled uh, by David. Then the Soviets took their eye off the ball when they got back to Moscow. They broke their training camp to some extent, started getting caught up that, uh, you know, it would be easy for them to beat Canada uh, on the broader, uh, bigger ice of uh, in Moscow, Olympic-sized ice. So there was a combination of Canada digging deep, overconfidence by the, the Soviets, getting down to a uh, real hardcore of Canadian players, and training. Because, you know, Larry, the big difference in this series was that the Soviets trained all the time, dry land training, 11 months of the year. The Canadian players in 1972, once the NHL season was over in May, uh, they would then uh, don't, they didn't do any training. They were drinking beer. They were selling beer. Uh, they got out of condition. And that's what training camp in September was for, was to get back into shape. Secondly, the Soviets had learned from the Canadian uh, um, educator, um, that one thing that's very important is diet and Lloyd Percival. And the Soviets knew that to be a proper athlete, you not only had to have year-round training, you had to eat properly. In Canada, we never did that. So the Soviets were ready uh, when they came over and we weren't. But as time went on, we got down to a core of players, training started to pick up, stamina started to pick up and uh, they were very tough games there were a lot of uh, roughness going on but i think everyone agreed including the soviets that it was canadian heart and determination that allowed us to get up off the mat and uh, win those final three games so gary uh, the series provided really a landmark canadian where were you when moment uh, the henderson goal obviously which lives on but you point out that the series also represented an important milestone in terms of the internationalization of the game of hockey. Do you think that was the primary legacy of the series? Well, I think it was. Uh, I mean, there was the, the idea that Canadians never give up. 
There was the idea that this was the first Team Canada. We've had many, many Team Canadas over the years uh, since in many, many sports. It was also uh, one of the very first times that we went abroad with the new Maple Leaf flag. You may recall that in the, the flag came in in 65, uh, and there was a lot of unhappiness in Canada with it, uh, particularly veterans who said, look, we fought under the Red Ensign, and uh, this isn't right that you're bringing in this Maple Leaf flag. So this had everybody in Canada, uh, coast, 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 uh, French and English, cheering for a Team Canada, um, wearing this great big maple leaf, the sunburst maple leaf on, on their jerseys. Uh, on the same token, the internationalization of hockey. What happened is that when the Canadian public saw these games for the first time uh, in Montreal, Toronto, Winnipeg, Vancouver, it was an excellent brand of hockey. They loved it. They wanted more international hockey. They were tired of the fighting and dumping in, uh, chasing the puck uh, back and forth and so on. So international hockey really caught their attention. And immediately we had players from Sweden, Borja Salming and uh, Inga Hammerstrom join the league. And then we had Czechs and we had Finns. Uh, and finally, when the Soviet Union was starting to collapse in 89, we had Soviet players. And right up to today, um, you know, in 72, I guess there were 97, 98% of all the players were Canadian. Now we're down to around 43% being Canadian. But Swedes and Finns and Germans and Czechs and Russians uh, make up a large amount, as do uh, Americans. So. That was the internationalization of hockey. And it's a, it's a great thing today. If you watch the Stanley Cup playoffs, you'll see that many of the uh, the leading players are, are Russian, you know, like Sergei Bobrovsky uh, playing very, very well for the Florida Panthers, who knocked the Leafs out of the playoffs one more time. Yeah, the game certainly has changed over over the last 50 years, no question about it. Uh, but Gary, I'd like to give you the last word. Um, to, to wrap this up, is there one memory or, of those tumultuous days in September 1972 uh, that you'd like to share with our listeners that perhaps they don't know about? Well, there, there are two things. Uh, one is the, and I guess, well, three things. One is, uh, the first is Phil Esposito, we talked about him being a leader and so on, that after game five in Moscow, I was uh, called aside the next morning by Coach Harry Sinden and said, hey, look, Gary, Phil's coughing up blood overnight. Uh, you've got to take him to a Soviet hospital for an x-ray. And he said, but you're not to tell anybody. I said, you mean the other players? Don't tell them. Uh, what about the uh, team doctor? Don't tell him either. I said, well, isn't he responsible for uh, medical conditions? Yeah, but I don't want him to know. And certainly don't tell the media. And he said, don't tell the Soviets either. Well, how was I going to do this without telling somebody? And luckily enough, the embassy had had 250 tickets for each game. And we had invited the British doctor to uh, to game five. Uh, he's the one who looked after us. So I called him, Richard Baxendine, and I said, look, I've got this problem. Can you help me? 
He said, well, get in an embassy car. Um, I'll give you an address. You go over there and they'll be ready to take him in the back door for an x-ray. And I did that. We got there and two very small Soviet nurses were uh, escorting us up and they were giggling away because Phil Esposito, a very big guy, uh, very tall and broad, and he's Italian background and he's got uh, a lot of hair on his chest. So when he got off his shirt for the, before the x-ray, the uh, Soviet nurses were giggling and the x-ray machine was way, way too small for, for Phil Esposito. So they had to stretch it out and elongate it. And he finally got up in there and they took a, an x-ray of him. And then the doctor came out and said, wow, there's nothing broken here, but you have this enormous uh, heart cavity. Um, he said that it's something that for athletes, it's a very, very important because it creates stamina and you have stamina. So Phil said, you mean I got a big heart? And the doctor said, yes. And the doctor and both nurses had seen game uh, five on television. They said that they wouldn't tell anybody about it, but uh, Phil was ready to go. So that's one story with him. The second story was just before game eight, it was the night before the Soviet authorities had invited all of us to uh, the ballet at the Bolshoi. And they put on the performance of Anna Karenina. And the prima ballerina by the name of Maya Plitsetskaya uh, was performing. Well, hockey players don't really go together with ballet. And most of them didn't want to go, but they did anyway. Uh, at the end of the first act, they were ready to, uh, to leave. And Phil Esposito stood up and started yelling and clapping and shouting out, bravo, bravo. And the ballerina looks out behind the curtain and says, who's that? And I said, well, that's Phil Esposito, a uh, leading member of the Canadian team. Well, the next day, game eight, as I mentioned, uh, after the second period, we were losing five to three. And who comes along but Maya Plitsetskaya, the Soviet ballerina? And she says, I want to speak to Phil. And Phil comes out of the dressing room and she steps forward and as a word through an interpreter saying, you came out to support me at the ballet last night and I'm here to support you at the hockey game uh, tonight. And Phil went out and in the third period, those three goals we needed, he scored one and assisted on the other two. And what happened when Canada won was that everybody in the Soviet cultural community said that it was the fault of Maya Plitsetskaya that the Soviets lost that she had encouraged Phil Esposito to go on to be Hercules on ice. <laughs> that's quite a burden to bear. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that's a that's sort of a hidden gem that most Canadians don't know about. But Larry, you know, the thing is, I've had, uh, you mentioned at the top, that uh, interesting diplomatic career that trouble followed me or I followed trouble. And... I was present in Germany when the wall came down and a war in Israel and terrorism in India and the Briex gold scandal in Indonesia and the collapse of the government and evacuation of Canadians and so on. But when people, when Canadians sort of talk with me and, and uh, learn about uh, my background as a diplomat, they're, what they're really interested in hearing they say, well, that's fine about the Berlin Wall and wars and terrorism and so on, but 
tell us about the hockey story. Tell us about what happened in Moscow with the Summit Series. And that, that you know, reiterates to me how much hockey is an important element in Canada and in the Canadian site. Well, Gary, I'd really like to thank you for sharing those stories. And I'd really like to thank you for joining me today and providing us with some really excellent insights into what happened back in September of 1972. My guest today was Gary Smith. His book, Ice War Diplomat, Hockey Meets Cold War Politics at the 1972 Summit Series was published by Douglas and McIntyre in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, please let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. You can also send us an email at info at champlainsociety.ca. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Larry Ostola. This interview was recorded on May 23rd, 2023. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team who also support the Champlain Society.